0: Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And actually, this is a special moment with Eric Fleming. This is a special episode dedicated to climate change and climate justice, right? And so I've been very fortunate to have a number of guests uh, come on. And so. I had two distinct guests who are activists when it deals to environmental issues and especially environmental justice. So I wanted to have a podcast dedicated strictly for them. And uh, I'm going to have those two ladies come on and talk about the importance of environmental issues in communities of color. And that's where a lot of the discussion about environmental justice comes in, which leads me to introducing my first guest. And her name is Jackie Patterson. Jackie Patterson, who has a master's in social work and a master's in public health, is the founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for Black frontline climate justice leadership. She has worked on gender justice, racial justice, economic justice, and environmental justice with organizations including Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, IMA World Health, United for a Fair Economy, ActionAid, Health Gap, and the organization she co-founded, Women of Color United. Before founding the Chisholm Legacy Project, Patterson served for 11 years as the Senior Director of Environmental and Climate Justice at the NAACP. She serves on the boards of directors for the Institute of the Black World, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. National Black Workers Center Project, Bill Anderson Fund, and the advisory boards for the Center for Earth Ethics and the Hive Fund. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to bring to you on this special podcast, Ms. Jackie Patterson. Sister Jackie Patterson, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well, thank you for asking.
0: Well, it's good to have you on. Um, And so one of the things that I try to do, if I can, is find a quote that's either related to the work that the guest is doing uh, or something that they've actually said, right? And I was able to find a quote that I think I can get a good response from you from. Okay. All right. It says, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. What is what does that quote mean to you?
1: Mm. Yeah, so that quote to me is about access and inclusion and agency. And so for me, it really is at the center of the work. That I do, and the passion that drives me. And it's around self determination for Black communities in particular, but self determination for everyone, recognizing that Black communities differentially do not have that level of self determination, that many Black communities don't have that level of self determination. And so for us, it's about making sure that uh, everything from who's making decisions. And so the, this, this, this notion of a table, um, who's at the table, making decisions around our education, the quality of our air, the quality of our water, um, the quality of our healthcare. And so when I think about that table and I think about making sure that we have a, a chair and a seat at the table, it's about ensuring that services systems are as accommodating to our needs. As they are to everyone else's.
0: So that quote was from Shirley Chisholm, which you, this, the organization Chisholm Legacy Project is named after. Define yes. the mission of the Chisholm Legacy Project.
1: Yeah. So the Chisholm Legacy Project, is, the, our mission is about working with communities to again, to advance self-determination. So working with communities, the whole name of the Chisholm Legacy Project is the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for black frontline climate justice, um, leadership. And, um, and so for us, that means that, again, it it is about having the seat at the table. So it means that making sure that people know what services, what uh, resources are out there to advance their self-determination, whether, and then also, knowing how to ensure that the resources are there if they aren't there. So for example, if a community, like a community we work in called Sand Branch, Texas, hasn't had running water since the eighties. And so we work with them to um, to know what their rights are as it relates to, to running water and to ensure that they have the, the knowledge of how to actually um, get their rights um, um, observed by the people in power. And so so that that's uh, our first objective around community building and everything else we do is around supporting community building. So the second thing in, in our mission is to do movement building. So that to the extent that communities connect to each other and so that it's not just one community having its needs met, but it's communities binding together and ensuring that the system as I said before, is there to meet needs, whether it's clean air, clean water, and so forth. And then bending the mainstream arc towards equity and justice, recognizing that so much of the resources in the environmental movement goes towards big green organizations or big organizations. We wanna make sure that those groups that are holding so much in the way of power, that they understand how to be in service to the leadership of frontline communities. And then our fourth focus is around Black femme, Black women, female identified people, well-being. Knowing that we hold so much of leadership in the in the struggle for environmental justice, yet also often Black women are held so little in, in the struggle. And so we want to make sure that the well-being of Black women is being centered as we do this work. So that is our mission. And in a nutshell, and our overall mission is to have a world where we're shifting from an extractive economy to a living economy that really cares for the well-being of all of its its, um, members, recognizing that we need to shift away from a a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality because the world was made, the, 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 the earth was designed regeneratively, so all of our needs can be met. But the problem is the concentration of resources, wealth and power right now. So our overall mission is to shift that power so that we all have a seat at the table.
0: So I like there was two terms you used. You said an extractive economy. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And as opposed to, and then a um, that last part you said about a scarcity. Yeah. Instead of having a scarcity mentality, have an abundant mentality. I yes. like that. That's that's pretty new. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Sure. So um, explain the work of environmental justice and how you got involved in that work. And before you answer that, let me. So the first time I ever heard the term environmental justice was, it was a flyer, a campaign that the NAACP was doing. And it was about communities that were set up next to transmission towers. Um, and I was like, wow, the NAACP does that too? I was like, when, when, so we're in the environmental business? Okay. Uh, but that was a big issue in I think Texas and Mississippi. I think those were two of the main states y'all were focusing on at that time. And I'm sure it's all over because it's dealing with developments and and I'm living here in Georgia now and I I know they done built some properties around so cuz they build it wherever there's some space, they are building something. Yes. Um Same. But but go into detail about the work of environmental justice and, and more specifically, how you got involved in that fight.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, for the past 11 years up until 2021, I, I was the founding director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program at the NAACP. And so the work there was my first foray into deeply doing environmental justice work as my full time focus. But the first time I encountered environmental injustice knowingly was when I was in Peace Corps in Jamaica and I worked with a, uh, company that, I mean, a, a community that had their water contaminated by shell oil, which was a dream, which was um, situated adjacent to that community. And they, and the community was trying to to fight for their rights, fight for some, um, fight for kind of accommodation that Shell Oil would uh, compensate them for having poisoned their water, because um, they they were all sickened by this this effluent that got into the water supply. And so that was my first real experience and observation of the kind of David and Goliath situation in these um, in these circumstances where the companies hold so much power. And in that case, the communities held so little in the way of power. And so they were only able to get like they shelled, quote unquote, donated some ventilated improved pit latrines to the community. And they provided some funding for a three Rs program recovery, reuse, recycle. In their their elementary school, and that's all the compensation that the community got for being, for drinking point water that was poisoned by Shell Oil hmm. for some time. So that was really that was really a, a, an education for me and a grounding. And so from there, I had, at that point I had only gone to I had I had graduated from undergrad and went into into um, into Peace Corps. And then after that I came out and decided to go into public health and really with a focus on community organizing as well. Cause I did a double degree in public health and social work um, with a concentration on the social work degree on community organizing and a concentration on the public health degree on, on uh, community health. To really, uh, um, cause I started to recognize just ex- it, the extent to which communities need to, needed to be able to build power um, in these circumstances with that being a real Real lesson, and so from there being in Peace Corps, I—I I mean, I'm sorry, being with the the um, NAACP. Fast forward, I just experienced so many ways that, as you say, the example of the transmission, the fact that African American um, families are the African American family making fifty thousand dollars a year is more likely to live next to a toxic facility than a white American family making $15,000 a year. According to the research of Dr. Bob Bullard, the work that we did on coal fired power plants, looking at 500 coal coal-fired power plants across the country, the plants that emit mercury, arsenic, lead, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, that African American family, um, is that, that African Americans, seventy-eight percent of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal fired power plant. And we see how that plays out. And the fact that African American children, are three to five times more likely to enter a hospital from an asthma attack and two to three times more likely to die of an asthma attack. And how we're more likely to have lung disease, but less likely to smoke as African-American adults. And just statistic after statistic, um, we see so many of us are living in the, in these cancer clusters that are situated around oil and gas refineries or other types of operations. And so these are the kind of circumstances that that we've seen that really define environmental injustice in terms of our disproportionate exposure to these harmful industries.
0: So and you, you labeled out a number of examples in your work, what has been the most blatant example of environmental racism that you, that you had to encounter?
1: So one springs to mind, and unfortunately there's this there are just so many and so egregious. Places like Crosstet, Arkansas, Reserve, Louisiana, these cancer clusters, these places where communities are just in what they call these, um, in Chicago, this place they call a the Toxic Donut. There's just so many of those. One that stands out um, where is uh, is in Dixon, Tennessee, which is in Jackson County, Tennessee, the sister named um, Sheila Holt Orsted she was a bodybuilder, health fanatic a person. And she had, uh, she, she found out that her father had this rare form of cancer. So she came home to be with him until he passed. And in her time at home, she, she started to observe that so many of her family members had these rare forms of cancer that the kids were born with with um with uh, these health outcomes, compromised health outcomes at, at birth. Um and then she herself was diagnosed with with breast cancer. And so she started to look into like what's going on here because it was a high incidence um, of these, you know, this cluster of, of challenges for the community. And so then she found out that the water supply had been contaminated by the erosion of the landfill liner um, of this landfill that was adjacent to their property. And and the stuff from the landfill, including trichloroethylene, which is a known carcinogen, got into the water supply. But that was kind of one thing. Then she found out, found through the records that the white families had all been sent letters for years ago, telling them not to drink the water um, and mm. telling them they need to get an alternate form of water. The um, animal shelter that was uh, there had been put on bottled water for the animals that were in the animal shelter. Their family, they had a homestead with several um, houses there. Um, and they hadn't gotten any notification whatsoever. And so they drank that trichloroethylene um, laced water for I think it was three years or so, and they they were not informed, and so that was and and they actually ended up um, working with the legal defense fund uh, the NACP legal defense fund, and were able to get. A three million dollars settlement um uh, from one of the responsible parties, and they're still working on others because they were found culpable because the evidence was irrefutable that these letters have been sent out to these families and not to their families, and so that's one of the more pronounced cases that was that was also legitimated even by the court system that this was this was um environmental racism,
0: wow. Um yeah. Yeah, that's 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 um <laughs> that you know it's like when I hear stories like that I'm 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 you know I'm trying to keep a certain demeanor but you you feel mm. that you feel that you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You feel Definitely. that and 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 uh I'm glad that there was there's been some resolution but well, I won't get into that. I mean, there's only yeah. you, you got 3 million dollars, but is 3 million dollars enough? You know what I'm saying? Right. In, in a system Never. in a yeah, it's yeah. but at least they got something. At least they got acknowledged that they were being discriminated against and and you were involved with that work with the NAACP, right?
1: Well, so this is the the folks who did the case was actually LDF, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So it's kind of they were, and so we we got involved uh, later on to help to raise attention. But really, the community and LDF was the one that really were successful. They were the ones who who won the case. You know, we came on after. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, but you it was it was a team effort because I know you were involved with it some kind of way. Um, Got it. Why do you think African American voices have been excluded from the environmental climate change conversations?
1: I think that uh that in the past there has been a in the past and even up until now although certainly as you said people have brought the folding chairs in abundance so so folks are very much in the conversations but we've had to push our way into the conversations to a large extent and so the you know it, it kind of following the the typical lines of of injustice that the resources flowed to the people who are in power, who tends to be these large white led organizations. And so that that has been so it's not like the communities haven't been fighting for environmental and climate justice, even so certainly we were the originators in terms of fighting for environmental justice from the whole PCB and even predating that um, situation in um, in North Carolina and onwards. And and also fighting for climate justice in a way that wasn't necessarily named as a fight for climate justice because we're fighting against these things that are polluting our communities that are the same things that are emitting the greenhouse gas pollution that's polluting the planet we're fighting for the types of things that whether it's local food access or and so forth these are the solutions that would solve the climate crisis And, um, even though when we were fighting for them, from them, for us, it's a matter of survival. And it's also a matter of, of kind of, uh, stewardship of the, and and living in harmony with the earth, but not necessarily named, um, uh, climate work. And so we've been kind of on the ground fighting for these things. Our traditions sustained the well-being of the planet and our harmony with the planet long before there was this kind of, um, labeled climate action by those in power and those who are seeking funding for it so i would say in terms of exclusion exclusion from the table it's just a typical you know from the the main table the money table it's just that typical kind of um white supremacy um that is is excluded that's just the same as everything else in in that way if that makes sense yeah
0: so it's like because you alluded to it a little bit um earlier when you were describing the mission work that you've got grass tops and then you've got grassroots. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like the the grass tops get all the money and the recognition and all that, but it's the grassroots is actually doing the work and yeah. 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 So, okay. So, um, you use the term I, I watched an interview that you did and you used the term carbon emissions shell game, explain mm. explain that to to the audience, yes. what exactly that yeah. is.
1: Thank you, yes, thank you. So long story short, people might hear about terms like carbon pricing, cap and trade. These are all kind of market-based mechanisms to tried to reduce the emission of carbon dioxide and so as you the the narrative that's out there and this is part of the thing too even around who's doing what on climate change who's involved and who isn't is is the control of the narrative so um so similarly this notion of the carbon dioxide being the single the single um Thing that's responsible for climate change is also a bit of a false narrative, and so the myopic focus on a carbon uh, reductions, carbon dioxide reductions, is kind of one thing. But and so with that, there is this notion of like, oh, we can, we can do put a price on carbon. We can and, and therefore, if it, it if it costs more to pollute, then people will, then these industries will pollute less. And it'll reduce the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere, and we will be able to avert the catastrophic climate change. And so, when we refer to it as a shell game, it's because uh, because for the for the energy sector, which is a, a multi billion multi trillion dollar um, sector, that that to, to if it costs more to pollute, a because there's a there's a uh, there's so much money that they're already making in terms of profits, b because they control so much of the regulatory system and the legislative system, that they will find a way, you know, so so it'll cost more to pollute. So it means that they they'll just they'll just put that money back to the consumers or put that money into pricing. As you know whenever the market fluctuates you know it's just like the, the prices go up so we just pay more but mm-hmm. they're not they're not making less um they just make you know they just and then that's where the the shell game comes in so somewhat so it might pay you might pay more to pollute and it might mean that instead of uh, running certain plants where it's more expensive to run those plants they'll they'll increase production at other plants and so that are cheaper to run and so the, the 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 plants that are cheaper to run tend to be the ones that are in our communities and so the shell moves from one place to another and it tends to be our communities and it creates what they call hot spots where there there's increased pollution in our communities where they start to run what they would previously have called peaker plants that they only run at peak season when they need the most energy they will run those plants all year round all, all you know 24 hours a day so you have more pollution coming into those communities but it's not less community less pollution in general it's more pollution in certain communities and then less pollution in others so that's what that's what's meant by the shell game notion hopefully that makes sense
0: yeah that, that makes sense that's a, that's kind of the essence I wanted you to convey that it's like, even though these companies are being fined or taxed or, you know, charged at whatever term you want to use for their admissions, there's a way they get around it. Whereas like the, the big factory is not generating so much, but the little factories that just happen to be in our neighborhoods are, are are pumping all this stuff out. So yeah, yeah. so we're catching it more than anybody else, and that's yeah. that. Yeah, so that's that's the essence I was trying to get to with that. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I think you kind of discussed it a little bit, and maybe I'll I'll come back to it at the end. Let me let me ask you this question because this is something that just recently happened. So, a recent study just released said that. Exxon Mobile scientists had accurate models of global warming from 1977 to 2003. All at the same time, they were lobbying Congress not to do anything towards slowing it down. How politically do you counter the impact of just the fossil fuel industry?
1: Yes, good question. So when I was at the NAACP, we put out two reports called Fossil Fueled Foolry. And so, for us, first off, is to really expose what's going on because so much of this happens, and people just have no idea. You know, so that that expose around the fact that Exxon knew, and there's actually, I think, even a uh, website Exxon knew, <laughs> um, because uh, to really call out what they're doing. And similarly, so so not only in terms of kind of this 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 science. Uh, hiding science and continuing to do planet-destroying activities, again, for profit. We also do fossil fuel foolery and kind of the media campaign around it, which ended up including a front page New York Times story. We are calling out the fact that fossil fuel companies do hold so much, like with groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, they pay into these trade associations that will not only lobby against clean air, clean water um, regulations, lobby against clean energy and um, energy efficiency, but but these fossil fuel companies also pay, you know, they're paying into the ALEC, which also pushes back, pushes forward on voter suppression, pushes back on voter um, on voter voting rights laws will push forward on school privatization, privatization, water privatization. So we're really trying to help people to see, to expose the many ways that fossil fuel companies are harming our society for, for profit. So for us, it's really exposing it in that way. And also pushing for, pushing for campaign finance reform so that they do not hold such a, such sway over our, our legislatures, over our regulatory systems, over our courts. Um, and so that they actually um, so that their power is 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 diminished in that way. So. So for us, it's both kind of trying to push on the legislative side, pushing on the regulatory side and also helping to expose and raise raise visibility so people actually know what's going on. Um, I was encouraged to see in the in in the last election, last presidential election, that when one of the surveys that they did found that people recognized how much of a sway that there was a growing number of people recognizing how much sway money has over politics and recognizing the fossil fuel industry has so much sway, and so that's progress. And we now need people to kind of vote with that understanding as well.
0: Yeah. So the question I skipped over and the reason why is because you, you pretty much have answered it in different ways. And the question was, what does grassroots action look like in the environmental justice fight? And it's like you talked about the lawsuit uh, uh, with that, uh, that sister and her family. Uh, you've talked about the campaign, information campaign that you've been doing, not just on on uh, the fossil fuel folly is I think is what you called it um
1: possible fueled foolery foolery (laughs) foolery yeah even better
0: uh so (laughs) you you've kind of explained that answer so this would be my part of the uh, program where I get you to promote your organization how people can get involved with what you do get in touch with you all that kind of stuff absolutely
1: thank you yes So the Chisholm Legacy Project, uh, the website is just that, thechisholmlegacyproject.org. Feel free to just Google it as well. And as you said, it's a legacy of, of Shirley Chisholm, whose work was about making sure that everyone has a seat at the table. So we would definitely welcome folks to be involved with us. We have 16 certification programs we're launching this quarter so people can learn everything about the intersection of black liberation and climate justice as it relates to energy, food water uh, disasters sea level rise so we have all of these specialized training and certification programs folks can get involved in we also are work a lot with unincorporated communities to to make sure that unincorporated communities who are often not considered uh when politicians who You know, we have great politicians who are about serving the people and representing their folks. And we have a political system that that can sometimes mean that unincorporated communities get left out of the system. So we're specifically working with unincorporated communities. So if anyone is listening, is out there in an unincorporated community or knows of an unincorporated community that can use our assistance and making sure that they have a seat at the table, we're here for that. We're also working with municipalities to help them to develop community-driven climate action plans. So if anyone is out there related to a, uh, a municipality that could use some help with making sure the communities are at the center of their planning process, we're here to help. And a slew of other things you can certainly read about on our website. But we have a lot that we're doing, and we're, we're, we're here for you, <laughs> um, you the people. So thank you.
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. Um so the certification process, so kinda of, kinda of explain that real quickly. What does that okay. do?
1: Yeah, so the certification programs are are really programs where so taking energy justice for example, um we have it's a three-tiered program. Uh first tier is fifteen hours of training, the utility business model 101, how to start uh community microgrid how to uh, testify at the Public Utilities Commission about rate cases for the rates that we pay for our, for our um, energy and what kind of energy is available to us, et cetera, et cetera. So that's 15 hours of training is the first tier. Then the second tier, you become a practitioner. So you get credit if you host a town hall meeting, get an op-ed place, host a community meeting. So that's the second tier that shows that you're actually practicing energy justice. And the third tier, when you become a guru, is when you have established a community microgrid when you have established a local ordinance on clean energy etc so we have the so that's for each and every one of these topics food justice um air air quality etc cetera, etc cetera. but the idea is that we 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 walk you through and accompany you through both the learning piece and the doing piece in your community and in the end you end up with a certification that you could take to help you get a job, to help you like folks who have gone through the programs in the past have gotten jobs in the um in the environmental and climate justice space of which there are many and in which they're particularly looking for um black indigenous people of color folks and then um and then some of the folks have gone on from to be community leaders and then have gone into elected office one person is a city council person the other person is a state a state representative and so forth so that's the certification program in a nutshell
0: okay that's that's pretty cool um well sister patterson i appreciate you coming on uh it was very very enlightening for me and uh, Mm i hope that it's enlightening to the listeners and i hope that um people get more engaged in in this fight because it's 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 just something that needs to happen so i thank you for coming on no
1: thank you i appreciate you Uh, yes
0: all right and and we'll catch y'all on the other side All right, and we are back. So I hope that you caught some significant things that are going on in the work that Sister Patterson is doing. Um. Yeah, so hopefully she'll come back on to discuss in detail a couple of those uh Issues, especially like the the unincorporated settlement in a settlement in a town in um, in Texas that hasn't had running water for thirty years, thirty plus years. You know, we've been talking about Jackson, Mississippi, and Flint. You know, but according to Sister Patterson, there's a lot of communities that are dealing with water issues, especially not even having access to it. So hopefully. We can come back on and have a distinct conversation about that issue, right? Um, but then, terms that she brought up, right, uh, that we'll try to incorporate not only in the next interview, but throughout. Uh, I really like the fact that they're stressing that to get out of a scarcity mentality and start being in an abundant mentality. Right? Instead of an extractive economy, create a living economy. I really like that. Um yeah, so I'm I'm am a practice that to keep that in the lexicon because that's affirming, right? If you if you're seeking to create a society that we live abundantly, which, according to those of us who practice Christianity, is the goal, right? You know that we are supposed to live life and live it more abundantly. Then, this is a way to incorporate that into our politics, as opposed to trying to tell people what they can or cannot do, right? Anyway, whole another conversation, whole another show. Let me go ahead and get to my next guest. Is dealing with uh, uh, these environmental justice issues. And her name is Amelia Marchand. Amelia's lineage includes, and forgive me, folks, <laughs> as I try to go through this. I didn't get a tutorial in, in pronunciation, but I'm going to do the best I can. And y'all listen in, y'all correct me. Let me know how bad it was. But her lineage includes Okanogan, Lakes, Moses, Columbia, Paulus, Chief Band of Wawama, Ipu, French, Irish, German, and Dutch. She is a wife, daughter, and granddaughter of U.S. Army veterans and a descendant of U.S. prisoners of war the U.S. American Indian Residential School System, and the U.S. Relocation Program for American Indians. Her personal experience and family history have increased her passion for indigenous rights, environmental justice, and implementing socially equitable solutions for climate change, adaption, and mitigation that not only honor values of community and reciprocity, but also heal wounds from intergenerational trauma and institutional colonialism. A citizen of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, Amelia is the Executive Director of the Center for World Indigenous Studies, an education research and public policy nonprofit established in 1979. She also volunteers as a board member with Conservation Northwest, the Nez Pierce Wallowa Homeland, and serves on the Women in Conservation Leadership Advisory Council for the National Wildlife Federation. Amelia earned her BA in Anthropology from Eastern Washington University, her MA in Environmental Law and Policy from Vermont Law School and has 24 years working in the cultural and natural resources field. She is a Public Voices Fellow of the Op-Ed Project at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and an alumnus of Presidential Classroom. And the Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program. Uh, she is also the founder of the Light Foundation, which uh, we'll get into in the discussion. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and distinct privilege to have as a guest on this special episode, Miss Amelia Marchand. all right amelia marchand how you doing sister you doing good
2: I'm doing good yes happy twenty twenty three
0: uh ah, same to you thank you um <laughs> so uh you promised me something uh when we when we were discussing having you on that you were gonna do for me and the audience um tell me what your indigenous name is
2: yes so generally when um when i'm giving a presentation or introducing myself um i will start and as will a lot of indigenous people with saying their their indigenous name their tribal name and their family affiliations or their clan affiliations or what tribe they're from um so, that's what I was, was going to do for you. That was short and sweet, because I didn't want to continue too long. <laughs> but okay. um, the first set, the first set is in the language of my grandmother and her people. It's in which is an interior Salish language um, and the second part is the same thing but it's in another language it's the language of Nimi um and that's the language of the, the Hapton speaking people which includes Mesters Himatilla uh, many other tribes
0: So I wanted to share that with you. Okay, that's cool. Now, Mm -hmm. I did, like I said, in the intro, I want you to correct me if I messed up a couple of names. So one, I said Okanagan. Is that correct? Or O-K-A-N-O-G-A-N?
2: Okanagan actually.
0: Okanagan, okay. Okanagan. mm -hmm. And then the other one was the Chief Joseph Band of Wawama Nimi'ipu.
2: So so that's uh, the Chief Joseph Band of Wawama Nimi'ipu, and Nimi'ipu is the in the, like, in the indigenous language, the, the name for the people, but the, I guess, non-native term for the people is And, And Okanagan is actually, like all of these different tribes and affiliations, they span multiple geographic regions, so the Okanagan people are from a portion that is both Washington State and British Columbia, and so there's family and relationships and affiliations throughout that region, and um, and then the Nez Perce people um, are what is, I mean, we can live anywhere today, but <laughs> um, the homeland region is what is today portions of south like southeast um Washington state and northeast uh Idaho or northeast Oregon and then kind of like a little bit of central central Idaho
0: Cool Um mm-hmm. yeah so I wanted that because uh one of the things that I wanted to do on this podcast and we had talked about this in private, but to let the audience know is that, uh, even though I'm African-American, a lot of the show is based off of the perspective of African-Americans. I do want this podcast to be a platform for other people of color and indigenous people. And, uh, but you know, hopefully I'll get into some more subjects, but that's, that's part of my quote unquote agenda is that I want to make sure that more voices from the indigenous community are heard. So I appreciate you coming on um, and to talk about a specific issue that's dealing with, well, we we, we as climate change, uh, uh, environmental justice, all those components. Mm-hmm. You started a foundation called Light. L I G H T. Um, talk about what the mission of that foundation is.
2: Yes, and thank you so much for <clears throat> for providing this space and this opportunity. Um, one of the one of the very unexpected um, things that I got in my in my email, so I appreciate the invitation. And and I also just want to recognize that there's there's so many people doing so much good work out there, and I'm just one of many. Um, so I feel really honored to, to join you. So thank you. And Light Foundation is actually an organization that my husband and I um, co-founded. We has both worked with tribal government, um, for the majority of our careers in different fields. He, um, worked in like finance and the health field and, um, and I worked more in natural resource, environmental management, cultural resources. And in that, throughout all that time, we were seeing that there was so many unmet needs of our community, unmet needs that the tribe didn't have the capacity to, to fulfill, unmet needs that the state government um, or, or even local and county governments weren't able to, to help support or didn't want to support. And the same with the federal level. So um, when you think about governance and how how those structures are established to help support all of the needs of the people, we just thought that those were not being met. And it wasn't just the needs of the people, but it was also the needs of the environment, the needs of the land. And um, one term, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It's called Indian country. But it's like kind of this concept, this idea that um, this is all indigenous land. Might not look like it used to. The people that now live here might, you know, think differently, act differently, speak in a different language. But um, as indigenous people, tribal people, First Nations people, we still um, really have a strong desire to to try to protect and and work with the lands that we that are our homelands in relationships. And so, so with the Light Foundation, all of these ideas and thoughts were kind of perfect, like. Like starting to grow, you know, percolating a little bit, and um, what we started to center around were were three key things, and one was to cultivate a positive relationship between indigenous peoples and individual landowners, so that we could have shared outcomes of ecological stewardship habitat conservation, and climate adaptation. And so we can talk more about that. But the second one is to enrich communities by providing hands-on tools and support for teaching gathering traditions, like plant gathering traditions, and honoring Native plants in culturally appropriate ways. And then the third part of our mission is to perpetuate ecological heritage of Indigenous peoples through intergenerational knowledge transmission and supporting traditional landscape practices. So, those are <laughs> those are kind of long-winded statements, <laughs> but. Um, I'd be happy to go into depth about any of them <laughs>
0: with you. Right. Cause we're, we're going to touch on some of that, but I just wanted uh, listeners to have a basic core understanding of what your foundation does and, and what it's doing. So that was good. Why, why is it important to include indigenous people in conversations concerning <laughs> environmental issues?
2: I think, you know, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, I can I'm fighting a cold. Um, I believe there's been a lot of uh, research that has come out within the past, even within the past year, but um, growing more and more, which states that in, Indigenous peoples around the world, not just here in the United States, but the lands that they still have control over, those lands that they still have um, management of, if you will, those lands contain the most amount of biodiversity still. And the average person might think, what does biodiversity have to do with anything? You know, And, and the connection that I want to share about that is if you think about the food that you ate last week, what would happen if there wasn't any tomatoes? Out of all the things you ate last week, how many of those included tomatoes in some way, shape, or form? Or um, a grain like wheat? Or eggs? So if you think about what the basis of our food system is. It's kind of a diverse array of plants and animals. But, and this is what we saw during, as, during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, was the, the current industrialized food system is very, very fragile because of supply, because of demand. I've never seen a a truckload of, of milk be spilled intentionally because they couldn't get it to the people that needed it, you know? So, so part of the reason um, why this is important is because the food that we need to nourish our, our bodies to keep us healthy comes from the land in some way, shape, or form. And um, if there's a threat to that, which is what many indigenous peoples have experienced over time, is a threat to their food system. Then, <clears throat> there's going to be significant social, um, social issues that follow, which, which will continue to, to harm those that have made the least amount of damage.
0: So, okay. That, that does lead to the next question. So do you think, do you think technical solutions toward environmental problems have inadvertently excluded indigenous people from the conversation and, or creates new problems for that community?
2: I, it certainly can. I don't believe it always has to, but it certainly can. Um, you know, trying to to increase Indigenous people's involvement in um, in decision making for whatever it might be. There's there's in the United States there's federal laws which require um, that the government, the federal government, have to work with tribes in a in a cooperative way. And that's under tribal consultation, Um, it hasn't always been that way, and there's always room for improvement, and when it comes to technological advancement, one of the the significant things that has been occurring over time and um, will continue is this the use of different of various types of intellectual property to um, to advance technological means and indigenous knowledge is intellectual property because it is it is based on thousands of years of research and observation and adaptation knowledge. So incorporating indigenous knowledge. Um, as intellectual property with with the data sovereignty of you know and con- consent of private people and indigenous people into technological advancements and research um, needs and even policy development is is something that people are becoming more aware of and actually just at the end of um, well, in December, the White House released a guidance document on Indigenous knowledge. And um, I can email you the link for that later. <laughs> but there's, there's so much that I think people can still learn from each other. We just have to find the most respectful ways to do it, to collaborate, Um, and try to move forward because the challenge of climate change that we're facing is unlike anything else that that humanity has experienced.
0: And so that, again, you're doing good. It's flowing into the next question. What is the importance (laughs) of understanding agricultural practices, especially (laughs) traditional practices, in the conservation of land in America?
2: Mm. You know, this um, this is a great question because one of the things that is the top point of of our mission was to cultivate relationships between people and landowners, like indigenous people and private landowners. And the reason why that in itself was important is because throughout the colonial and westward expansion of the United States, um, indigenous land transferred by a variety of ways, a variety of diverse and insidious ways um, into individual ownership and that has led to so many uh, of the environmental harms that we're seeing, whether it's um, pollution or just land degradation or fractionation of habitat, um, that it continues and continues. And with the way that industrial agriculture has, has really you know, expanded in our country and others, not just ours. Um, there's this perspective of taking from the land, regardless of the cost, and those that perspective and that kind of kind of ideal is not what many of the uh, indigenous values and belief systems were you you never took more than you needed and in fact there's this really wonderful um magazine and podcast um, called emergence magazine and they recently had a featured kind of like speaker um who's who's an author and an ethnobotanist um, and an indigenous woman. And her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. Not sure if you heard of her, but she's, she's amazing. And one of the things that she shared in that podcast was um, this perspective of, I can't remember exactly which... Um, which tribal group it was, but they said, we don't, we don't kill more deer. We don't kill more elk. We don't kill more moose than we need, because why would we, why would we do that? We don't store the meat. We don't dry it. We, for forever in perpetuity, we only take and then use what we take and if I store it anywhere, I store it in the belly of my friends. I call them to come over and share with us. And, and that idea of, of sharing the landscape doesn't just extend to other people, but to our, what I like to call our spirit relatives are the animals and the plants as the landscape. And if you look at a field that has been plowed over and all there is is wheat or all there is is corn, it's like just a monocrop agricultural field. The chemical input, the energy input that go into to try and making that one product um, accessible only for the profit of, of that corporate entity and not sharing it, not enriching the soil with the nutrients that it needs, not protecting the waterways so that there's less erosion, um, you know, there's going to be a time when this shift will happen. This is something that, um, that I've heard my elders say. There's going to be a time when this, this shift is happening and the world is going to change. And we will always be here and people that don't know people that don't understand, they will need to come and learn to be with us in the future. So learning that different, that different perspective of how to, how to live on the land, how to increase biodiversity, support pollinators will help support not just the health of the environment and the health of those, all those creatures that are there, but it will help us be healthier as well in spirit and in body and mind.
0: So, and this is similar to a question that I asked a um, another guest, but I'm phrasing it a different way do those who push for land conservation run into opposition from the big agricultural companies, um, like those who are concerned about global warming as opposed to the fossil fuel industry? Do y'all have that same kind of conflict?
2: You know, I, I would say, yes, it depends on the area because in my experience, there are many small, and it, and, and it depends on where you're located as well, um, for whatever reason <laughs> that we don't have time to go into. But um, there are a lot that I have seen of like kind of smaller scale family farms, individual um maybe there are organic farms maybe they practice some form of like permaculture um and they are very much interested in looking at whatever land they have management control over and saying okay this this is we're fortunate enough to have this land what can we do to create a a little area within this that maintains and supports natural habitat. And we can still do our, you know, do our farming work, do our income work. And then, um, it's at the larger level, I believe, where people have become a part of the, of that kind of corporate industry. Um, where they're less inclined to to make those those changes um and and it's not just like i talked about wheat and i talked about corn but i also think of like the we have in our region there's a lot um of vineyards that are being uh, like in like want to be created from taking out of the natural landscape and converting it into vineyard and um, (laughs) I actually have heard stories of this region where people like there was wildlife organization like conservation organizations and they had mapped natural landscape and there's certain types of plants in certain areas and the soil is different in certain areas and so they were mapping it to identify what types of like birds were using it as nesting habitat and because all these areas were shrinking due to development and vineyard expansion well it turns out that one of the other large um, I don't know, venture organizations. I don't even know what they're called. They got their hands on a version of that map. And in looking at it, they were able to to use it and identify where the places would be best to put vineyards. And and so that you know, and I'm not trying to say I don't like to have corn on the cob or I don't like to have bread and I don't like to have um, you know a glass of wine that's that's not the issue the issue is how we're producing these things and there's um, so one of the I guess initiatives that Light Foundation has which we're starting to try to brainstorm and build out is we want to also identify um, not just individual landowners but those kind of larger producers that want to have wildlife habitat or that are doing salmon safe practices because we're w- where I am is um, still part of like the salmon nation. We're very much trying to to revive our salmon populations. And um, we want to do it not just for for the land, for the animals and creatures, but for ourselves too because so many of those native plant species that should be there providing the habitat are part of our food and part of our medicine and part of our sacred um, our sacred fibers, you know, so it it's an ongoing development trying to find solutions to these very very complex and and historic problems
0: <laughs> right, and that I think that was kind of the spirit of um h r ten fifty four that it was. There was supposed mm-hmm. to be some kind of balance to try to get more indigenous uh, plants uh, certified. I think is that is that what that was? Uh, and then and then working with state legislatures to do similar type legislation. Yeah, HR ten
2: fifty four was the. It was titled "Botanical Science and Native Plants." Material Research and Restoration and Promotion Act. And that um, would have required all federal agencies to support native plant material research, restoration and promotion, but it would also require all federal agencies. And this is kind of the interesting thing to to replace all of their landscaping with whatever native plants would have been at that site where that facility was. Okay. So the native plants, like, so this location where I am in Washington would not be the same as the native plants that might be at a federal facility in Florida. So... Um, so Trying to to support laws and policy development like that is another way that we, another approach that we're trying to take. Um, because if you think of, like if you were to zoom out and have not even a bird's eye view, but maybe like a satellite view of of the U.S. And consider all of these the barriers that birds and bees have and birds and bees are are, our primary pollinators um which support so much of our own food chain and it's not just like a physical um like a wall is a physical barrier but another type of barrier is just a huge uh, like an area in great enough size where there's where there is nothing maybe it's all concrete you know maybe maybe there's um chemicals that have been that have been sprayed that have killed all the vegetation or so those are other types of barriers that every every piece of of decision-making, that, that we could try to include native plants, that we could try to include, um, you know, support wildlife habitat, reduce invasive species, that is going to help support from the greatest to the smallest all along the path.
0: So it's obvious we're going to have to have you come back because this is... What- <laughs> is <laughs> a lot we covered a lot of stuff right but there's it's obvious Just, just watching you and listening to you talk there's so much more detail that needs to go into just the the land conservation part we didn't even get into how you know this might relate to other issues that affect climate change but just the land conservation yeah. part is very very key so what I like to do is have people uh, that have groups or causes or organizations just basically do a shout out. How can people connect with you connect with the light foundation uh, to learn more about the work on their own?
2: Excellent. Yeah. So um, our website is the dot org. So thepnwl S.org. And um, we have, folks can sign up for a newsletter there. Um, we're still pretty young and we have our initiatives on the website. Um, we have our, our, our board on the website. We're putting together an advisory board actually as well. Um, there's kind of a lot, there's actually a lot of behind the scenes that um, things that we're working on, which aren't necessarily posted on our website, but folks can definitely sign up for um, for our newsletter. We're offering a scholarship, um, an annual scholarship, and information is available on there for that as well. We're really trying to, to reinvigorate some of these practices that were hard for me to learn were hard for my husband to learn, and um, just change that perspective a little bit to want to want to give more than you take.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate the knowledge that you've given to me and my, my audience today, uh, Amelia Marchand. Thank you for coming on uh, a moment with Eric Fleming podcast. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right, guys, and we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So, as you can tell from my two guests, that there's a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to climate issues, climate justice, environmental justice climate change global warming whatever uh title or 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 interest you have on this issue the the planet again as i stated in the intro is is our home and and we have to do a better job of taking care of it um and so Hopefully we can get more people that are doing that kind of work to come on the podcast and talk about it. And I hope that Miss Marchand and, and Miss Patterson will come back onto the podcast to talk about more of the work that they're doing. Uh, a half hour with them is not really long enough. <laughs> Each one of them, they, they are doing so much. And again, I was honored that they took some time uh, to come on and explain what's going on with their with their work. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this special podcast that we dealt with, Climate Change and Justice, and that you also listen in to the regular podcast where I have a couple of awesome guests that are going to come on and talk about other issues. So with that, until next time.